Stephen Palmer's Hairy London, Episode 16. Bedlam was bedlamicious. Jeremy would never have imagined, not even in his worst nightmare, of the fanged and glutinous peril beneath the dungeons of the Temple of Azure Lick, that a place so awful could exist. Yet, this was no place of monsters. It was a place of people, hundreds of people crammed together in cages, most of them mad, and most of them not mad, about to be sent mad by the injustice of being forced to live alongside the mad. He gripped the bars at the front of the cage and screamed for justice. But the cardboard uniformed goons outside the cage just spat at him and laughed. The cell in which he had been dumped was as large as the back of a house. Its walls damp and gunk-befouled red brick, home to twenty inmates, more if you counted the rats. Sharami counted the rats because they ate half the food, if you could call wet bread and hellmash food. Though most of the inmates were struck dumb or spoke an incomprehensible loon tongue, some were able to talk, and of these, one, a dark-skinned woman, seemed the least damaged by incarceration. At the end of the evening of Sharami's arrival, as the goons called for silence and spread soporific smoke from censers, she approached him with a damp cloth and said, Bless this over your mouth. He did not like the look of her, thin as a rake with scraggy black hair and the pock-marked skin of one entertaining no hope. Her dark and lustrous eyes suggested an Hindu parent, but her fine nose and delicate features suggested the other might be Caucasian. Gruffly, he said, What do you want from me? You seems a man of the gentry, she replied. He glanced away. Her speech was rough-accented, and he wanted no truck with even the sanest bedlam inmate. But as the stinking smoke began to waft into the cell, he took the cloth and placed it over his mouth, following her to a dark recess in the further wall. Who are you? he asked. Mrs. Grout, she replied, of East Acton. Jeremy grunted. Hmm, really? And was your mother a native slave? She was an Hindu princess, she was, Mrs. replied somewhat annoyed if her expression was anything to go by. Jeremy sighed. What's this cloth business for? Stops the smoke sending you to sleep. He grunted again, already bored of the conversation. As if we've got anything to talk about, he muttered. I might be mulatto, she replied, but I am a person. I'm sure you are. Mrs. took a pace back, scowling. There's no help in some people's. There's nothing mere help can do, Jeremy retorted. I'm stuck here for life, and all for something I didn't do. How would you feel? <laughs> oh, you are a one, Mrs. replied. You've got no thoughts as to why I'm here, eh? Well, why are you here? Jeremy replied with bad grace. If you must know, my mother was raped by a knob. One of your lot, quite possibly. So they got me a few months back and threw me in here. 
just because I don't know me daddy. Eighteen years growing up in East Acton, minding me own business, then this, nice, I calls it. Jeremy sighed once more. I'm not a proper noble, he said. Just one of the superior classes, Jeremy Pantomile. He almost added, at your service, but stopped himself as he realised what that offer might entail. She reached out, took his right hand and shook it. He pulled away, embarrassed. Not diseased, she said, not even from being half Hindu. He shrugged. I'm sorry about what happened to your mother. A brief mental picture of Valentina came to his mind's eye. Women have worth, to my way of thinking, and deserve decent British art treatment. Yes, well, Mrs. said, that's that sorted then. So what are you in for, eh? A rogue police officer took offence at me escaping from his jail, which I did because I was set up. Set up? Opium smuggling, Jeremy said. But I've never even seen opium, still less dealt in it. I'm sorry to hear that, truly I am. Yes, well, we're both here for eternity, it would seem. Doubtless we'll be going mad in the years to come. Mrs. grinned. Not if we escapes. Escape? You're still here. If you know how to escape, why haven't you? She squeezed the bicep of his right arm. Never had the man strong enough for helps. Strong enough? There's half a dozen men here stronger than me. They're all mad, remember? You aren't. I know, because I've been bedlamized a while now. I know loon-faced from sad-faced. Jeremy began to wonder if Mrs. had gone moon-addled during her incarceration. Delusions of escapology. Oh, I sees it in your eyes already, she muttered. Mrs. is a looper, a nut. Escape is impossible, Jeremy interrupted. You're imagining it. He shrugged, then added, I understand, however, anyone would get drunk on dreams of escaping this place. But it's truth. Let me show you. Look yonders. She pointed at the blank wall. He said in a matter-of-fact voice, I see brick, lots of brick, and mad people sleeping, leaning against the brick. We're lucky they placed the brazier to the side of the wall tonight, Mrs. said. Throw in shadows of bricks and mortars. Shadows? Don't you see a shape in the wall? The light was fire-red and dim. Jeremy took a few paces forward, stepping over sleeping bodies, until he stood a few yards away from the wall. I see nothing except brick, he repeated. Mrs. stepped forward and traced an arc with her hand. There's, she said. An arch, all done up. The bricks is different colours, you sees. Hot damn, she was right. An arch-shaped hole had at some point been bricked up. A fireplace, he whispered, realising what structure must have been present. Which means... A chimney. Jeremy nodded. And a way up out of this cell. But to what? Not here, whatever's it might be. Mrs. said. So, my task tonight is to unblock this chimney? Mrs. nodded. Jeremy rolled up his sleeves, then glanced over his shoulder. In the ruddy light of the brazier, he saw a single goon, 
asleep with his chin on his chest and a line of drool emerging from his mouth. That time is now, he declared. He started the bricked-up fireplace, seeking the weakest mortar. Some of the bricks at floor level, stinking of rat-wee, were so blown they were crumbling. And these he scraped, using just his fingers, for he had no tools. It's no good, missus, he said. My nails won't stand this work, and soon my fingers will be blooded. She thought for a second, then pulled a clip from her hair. Use this to make a hole large enough to get a couple of fingers in, she said. Then use brute's force to pull the mortar away, eh? Well, never gets out just scraping, see? You're correct, he said. I'll try your clip. He scraped for a while until he made a hole in the damp mortar deep enough for him to push three fingers in and feel the back side of the brick. Lying on his side, he tried to get a purchase on the ground. Hold my legs, he said. Anchor me, and then I can try to pull out the brick. Right, see how? He pulled. The brick moved. He pulled as hard as he could, until with a thunk and a fall of dust it came out. At once a cold breeze wafted over his face. Soot, he whispered. He pulled Mrs. towards him and let her smell the air. Soots, she agreed. A chimney. Encouraged, he pulled out more bricks until the point came when he suspected a section of the wall might collapse. That hole's not big enough for us to squeeze through, he said. We'll have to risk a collapse, alerting the guards. Mrs. glanced at the still sleeping goon. He's in bye-bye, Lance. Pull on, Jeremy. We've got to get out soon. He nodded. He had made a hole a foot by a foot, which would be noticed even from outside the cell. Pulling more bricks, he enlarged the hole, until, with a crack and a rumble, a section of the wall three feet wide collapsed. Dust plumed into the air. Inmates groaned in their sleep, but the goal dozed on. Now we climb, said Jeremy. The chimney was as black as Africa, a thin flue stinking of soot that fell upon him the moment he entered the fireplace. He coughed, then tried to stop himself coughing. <coughs> Mrs. handed him her cloth, but it was almost dry and he had to reject it. No more waters, she whispered. Get climbing, slow coach, we's in danger. He reached up, found brick ends and pulled himself upward, scrabbling with his feet to get purchase. In this terrible fashion, half-choked with soot and with no idea of how high he was, he ascended the chimney until he thought he would suffocate and fall to his demise. And then a breath of fresh air. He knew not where from, just that it was cold and clear. He stopped moving, tried to listen. Nothing, except Mrs. scrambling up behind him. Invigorated, he made one last effort, feeling a wooden bridge some moments later, which he used to pull himself up. Then he slumped upon a floor, choking, exhausted, filthy in pitch darkness, but alive and out of the cell. Mrs. followed. Mr. Freud, the psychonaut, lived at 20 Maresfield Gardens, Hampstead, having been expelled from his place of birth by the Kaiser, there also lived his wife and his daughter Anna, who, rumour had it, was almost as fearless to psychonaut as he. 
Velveen piloted the mansion over to Maresfield Road, landing in a great tuft of brown hair. The Machinora changed color so as to blend in with its surroundings as Velveen disembarked. He carried his rucksack on his back, but left the clay figure and the trolley inside the Machinora's wicker capacity. Then he forged a way through the thick street hair to Mr. Freud's front door. A bell tinkled. Velveen, a veteran of the Egyptian baboon expedition, recognized it as one from Cairo. The door opened and he saw a young woman. Good morning, she said. Is Mr. Freud in? asked Velvine. I am Velvine Orchantide of the House of Orchantide. Yes, the young woman replied. I'm Anna Freud. Come in. Do. Father's at a loose end. He's lost a lot of clients recently because of all this hair we've been having. Indeed. Velvine chuckled. And does he have an explanation for it? Anna considered this question. You think it might have its origin in a person's mind? Velvine shrugged. Anything is possible in the modern world. Anna laughed and said, I'll go and tell Father you're here. Velvine waited, pulling his rucksack off to appear more like a gentleman. He had brushed and cleaned his clothes as best he could, but he was aware that he still appeared dishevelled, not least because he had not shaved for days, an event unknown in his life so far. He glanced into a mirror, wiped beads of sweat off his forehead, straightened his cravat. On a side table lay a copy of that morning's Times. He glanced at the headline. Royal Institute scientists focus on Chelsea cosmeticists. Rumour of rogue hairdressers confirmed by PM. My father will see you in his study, Anna said. Velvine walked into the study to see Freud, dapper in a pinstripe suit and a straw boater, standing beside an Egyptian potato. He glanced around the room to see a painting of Oedipus and the Sphinx, a green tub chair and a luxurious couch on which lay a rug patterned in red, yellow and brown. A rug from Iran, I note, he remarked. You have been to Iran, Freud asked, sitting in the tub chair. Velvine sat back on the couch, arranging the chenille cushions so that he was more comfortable. I was a member of the Suicide Club's Tehran Expeditionary Force, he said. Last year, we went to rescue the Shah from the red-faced devil boys of Esfahan. They hate their fathers, you know, Freud observed. Velvine took a deep breath and said... Sir, I have come here on a vital mission. Will you aid me, eh? Certainly, Freud replied. Why not lie back on the couch and make yourself as comfy as possible? Velvine did as he was instructed, then continued, rather foolishly, some might say, though mostly because I found myself short of funds. I signed up to a wager that involves uncovering the true nature of love. Now, Mr. Freud... I am a man who delights in the company of women and marvels at their many accomplishments, but I have never known love, not even been married, not even, well, you know. Excellent, Freud said. What I want you to do is to tell me about your mother. Do not consciously constrain what you say. Do not, to use the journalistic term, edit yourself. 
Just tell me what comes into your head when you think about your mother. I like her. No, no, I hate her. I want to kill her. Why do you want to kill her? Because she's a dragon, and dragons must be killed. Like St. George, eh? She flies and flaps around the place, putting everything in order, telling me that God will punish me, praying for me, while all the time my wretched brothers with their simpering faces and stupid cassocks prance around Ely and Lincoln, telling their flocks how bad they've been. It's an outrage. You hate your brothers, then? asked Freud. No, not hate them, despise them. Are they older than you? Yes, Chompton is the oldest, with Spagnum the middle one. What comes into your mind, said Freud, when you think of your mother and your two brothers together in some familial setting? I'm being mocked, excluded, laughed at when I look the other way. I remember a picnic we had. They all ate duck and partridge sandwiches while I had mere ham. Mere ham, it makes me fume to this day that she only gave me ham, and me losing all my hair. Are you losing all your hair? Well, yes, yes, Velvine muttered, embarrassed that he had said such a thing. You're getting a bit thin on top, but what has that got to do with it, eh? You said it, not me. Velvine frowned, gazed at the ceiling, then shut his eyes. I suppose, being the youngest of the family, I was ignored somewhat. I am guessing, Mr. Freud. I have no evidence, you understand. But it seems to me that the dragon was more interested in the church than me, and my two brothers part of the church. So convenient. No bloody wonder I joined the bloody suicide club. Why did you join the suicide club? No, oh, the virility, I suppose. You see, I'm a God-fearing Christian. But there are aspects of the church that annoy me. Oh, I should never complain. The church does marvellous work. But, well, it has always annoyed me, and they are so impotent in the world today. Do you realise, said Freud, you have not mentioned one word about your father? But you have not asked me about my cat. Uh, your cat? Yes, Velvine said. You remarked that I had not mentioned him. That is because you have not asked me about him, eh? That is not my point. You have not mentioned him. Well, there is little enough to say about him. He is ill, with poor blood circulation and all the rest of it. Though he used to be healthy enough when he was younger, perhaps the dragon is poisoning him. Is that the sort of thing she would do? Most certainly, Velvine replied. It is well known that dragons have poisonous breath. I suppose I should find myself a horse and a lance and have at her. It's the humane thing to do. The judge and jury will understand. How would you feel if you killed your mother? Free, Freud said. But would she watch you from heaven? Undoubtedly, but she would not walk on this earth and so could not touch me. Could not touch you, you say? Yes. Do you like to be touched? asked Freud. Velvine laughed, appalled and delighted at the same time. <laughs> my, my, he replied, wiping a tear from one eye. That is the most ridiculous question I have ever been asked. Why, Mr. Freud, I do declare you are the very punch of Hampstead, the very punch. 
Freud said nothing for a while. At length he said, Do you like yourself? The Suicide Club is proud of me. My colleagues respect me. But do you like yourself? Freud insisted. Well, my suicide colleagues speak well of me, and the vicar thanked me for bringing damsons to the Harvest Festival last year. Hmm. Is that everything, Mr. Freud? Yes, Mr. Orchard Tide. Velvine sat up and turned to face Freud. Then what can you tell me, eh? You will bore yourself. You know less about love than a nut. You will lose the wager. What? You impugn me, sir. Freud shrugged. I tell the truth which I dredge from the human mind. Velvine sprang to his feet, anger animating him. Well, I wish now I'd never come here, he cried. Good day to you, you charlatan. I shall not be paying you a single brass brocket for your time, and I shall show myself out of your house. Freud stood up, surprise on his face, but he said nothing and made no attempt to haunt Velvine's departure. Outside in the sun, Velvine slammed the front door shut behind him. Insolent bastard, he said. He hurried back to the Machinora, which lay where he had left it. Inside the wicker capacity, he paused for a while, drank a sip of water from the rain collector, then sighed. Stroking the clay figure, he said, Well, Lilibet, I am no nearer the truth of love than I was before meeting that clown Freud. What shall I do next, eh? He pondered the question he'd asked himself for some time before a thought entered his mind. Of course, he said, Mr. Jung. Cornucope's gunshot injury was nasty, but not life-threatening. The bullet passed through the side of his chest, damaging muscle and bone but missing organs and arteries. In a week he was on his feet at home in Hampstead. Then, one day, he received a letter by Bat Post, delivered to his rooftop cave by a pipistrelle. He read it aloud to Estatia. Lord Blandhubble requests the presence of Cornucope and Estatia Weatherby at the Foreign Office, today at 3 p.m. sharp. Estatia's face lit up. Perhaps they have news of the hairy plague. Cornucope nodded. Or perhaps it is another mission for us, most likely since Blandhubble wants to speak to us in person. I fret here at home, dearest one with little to do, and the dread rumour of cockney disturbances. Me too. He smiled, then hugged her. What a team we make. The underground got them as far as Hoban Station before the carriages were halted by choking hair, often slipping in glutinous pools of sebum before entering Whitehall, with its clipped paths and ribboned locks. At the Foreign Office they were ushered into Lord Blandhubble's rooms, where, as before, they partook of tea and honey biscuits. Good of to come, said Lord Blandhubble. Travel's becoming more difficult as the hair grows longer. What do you want of us? Cornucope asked. With you being a chap at the Suicide Club, I thought this might be one for you. Do you know Egenham? Small town near Windsor Great Park. Only by reputation. 
That far out of London the hair generally recedes, though, as it happens to the southwest, even as far as Virginia water, it's tough and clumpy. But there is a place down there, a chateau, and in that chateau there is a man. Cornico frowned. A man? Cornelius struck it by name, a madman, or so we thought, until I received this from the director of the chateau. Lord Blantubble passed Cornucope a single sheet of paper, on which a brief letter had been composed. Lord Blantubble, I am reporting to you as requested. Struckett insists he knows the source of the hairy plague. His madness is much reduced, and most of what he says makes sense. Suggest you send down a mindometer, so that Struckett may be analysed in depth. Mindometer will need protection, however, as this area is full to bursting with starving tribes. Yours in haste, Viennese Harmonia. Both extraordinary and intriguing, Cornucope remarked. My wife and I are then to be the protection. Lord Blantubble puffed at his clay pipe and smiled. My dear chap, he said, I could send any hired muscle as protection. No, you're to be my eyes and ears in that place, as well as protection. I've always had a high regard for members of the Suicide Club, but since the Gandhi incident and that nasty affair, uh, let's say the close call in Swiss Cottage, I've realised the government needs you. More than ever, Estatia remarked. Precisely. I may even change my attitude to suffering because of you, dear lady. He chuckled. <laughs> Not really, only joking. So you'll take on this mission? Yes, yes, absolutely. And you, Mrs. Weatherby? With pleasure. Lord Blandhubble stood up. Excellent. I've taken the liberty of booking tickets for you on the Reading Express, leaving from Waterloo at 3.50 this afternoon. Be there in good time, won't you? You can take luncheon at my club in Whitehall Court. Ask for manservant Ponsonby. He'll look after you. Oh, and ladies are permitted there, Mrs. Weatherby, with a bag over their head. I'll have my lunch in St. James's Park, Estatia replied. At two o'clock that afternoon, Cornucope and Estatia struggled across Westminster Bridge, then along York Road, which was choked to chest height with thick ginger hair. The station itself was her suit on the outside, but only lightly bearded inside. Messengers and announcements, written in chalk on blackboards, directed them to Platform 9, where the Reading Express awaited. As with all modern trains, it had been made by the Belgian Seashell Company, using only the finest chocolate. The carriages themselves, third, second and first class, were made from a mixture of milk and white chocolate, blended so that pale swirls flowed like ink dropped in water through the brown substrata. Windows were made of sugar glass. The locomotive itself was powered by cold steam and looked like a bison on the wheels. Its pistons and chambers bunched up as if muscled limbs. Reading the strawberry nameplate, the pride of the carob, 
Cornucope discovered that it had been created by master chocolatiers from dark chocolate at a ratio of 80% cocoa solids. It was decorated with seashells in the traditional style. Our tickets are first class, Cornucope said. Let us board and find an empty compartment. The first class compartments were little occupied and Cornucope was able to settle with Estatia so they both had a window chair. The luxury of their marshmallow seats was impressive, as were the nougat tables and bioluminescent ceiling lamps. A waistcoated flunky served them rosé tea and caboodle whams. At 3.51 the train departed Waterloo Station, its cold steam gurgling like deli belly as it accelerated. For a while, Cornucope gazed out at the passing scenes of hairy London before the sight of ruined buildings, starving people, and especially in Wandsworth, which looked like as though a hundred bombs had hit it. Destroyed neighbourhoods depressed him. If only the poor could be as wealthy as the rich, he observed. To pass the time, he read the contents of his secret dossier, which explained he would rendezvous with the mindometer at Egenham Railway Station from which they would make their own way into the town itself and then on to the chateau. It was a warm day. Railwomen carrying rotating fans walked up and down the carriages, cooling the chocolate. But even with their efforts, some of the seams began melting, while from the roof almond shavings began to fall like sweet snow. Then, at Staines, disaster. Viennese Harmonia had been wise to warn of starving tribes. A group of mad-haired women dressed in rags attacked the locomotive with flaming torches, causing the chocolate pistons to melt, and then a flood of cold steam in which hazelnuts floated. The train guards ran helter-skelter along the melting carriages, crying, Abandon train! Every man for himself! Abandon train! Cornucope and Astatia smashed a sugar glass window and sprang through, alighting on the railway platform as their carriage melted in a slow torrent of sweet brown goo. The chairs, which Cornucope realised were not yet dead, also tried to escape, but it was too late for them, and all suffocated beneath that dread chocolate weight. Cornucope pulled a horrified Estatia away from the carnage. Do not look, dearest one. It will only put you off, Marshmallow. I'll never plant them again, she sobbed, as Cornucope dragged her away. He paused to look back as they approached the station gate. A mistake. The feral women were all writhing in the chocolate chaos, stuffing goo into their faces. He felt sick. He hurried out into the road, trembling from shock. With a score of other passengers, they strode along the road linking Staines and Egenham, the hair soft and brown, little more than ankle-high. But the atmosphere of the place was eerie, and he knew the collapse of London had ramifications further out, perhaps even through all of the land. He shook his head in sad reverie. If he could do anything to uncover the reason for the hairy plague, he would. At Egenham Railway Station, he collared the stationmaster and said, 
We were told that a certain mindometer would be here. I'm Cornucope Weatherby. Here is my rail ticket as proof of identity. Ah, oh, Mr. Weatherby. Station Master pointed to a man and a woman standing at the far end of the platform. Over there, sir. Cornucope led Estasia to the couple. The woman was of late middle age, he judged, with fine, strong features and a bun of grey-streaked hair. Her complexion was fresh, almost youthful, and she looked healthy. The man was younger, perhaps of Mediterranean descent, with curly black locks, a floppy moustache and a rascally bearing. She wore a blue bustled skirt and a lace-fringed moulette, while he wore the long frock coat and simulated stovepipe hat of an industrial magnate. Sir, madam, Cornucope said, offering the pair a bow. I am Cornucope Weatherby, and this is my good lady wife, Estatia. We are here to collect the mindometer. You found us, the man replied. I am Yegman Spiv, and this is Zarina Ordinary. We are the Mindometer. You have been listening to episode 16 of Stephen Palmer's Hairy London, narrated by R.D. Watson. <laughs> <laughs>